If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Do you want to start reading or shall we talk? Oh, you choose. A bit. Yeah, okay. Let's talk a little bit. Okay, all right. I wanna, I'd like to start by, because maybe some people here haven't heard you do events from the beginning of this sequence. So I thought it would be worth going back to the beginning yeah, of the okay. sequence and seeing also maybe how you think about it now that okay. you're three books in. So how did it start for you? And did you, did you know you would get to where you are now? What, to ha- actually have three books written? <laughs> I think less that than the shape that they would than take. They, that they would take. Um, I have had all the way through this process to trust the process in a way which is... I mean, I thought I did trust the process already. I thought I had that written on my, you know, somewhere in my frontal lobe backwards so I could read it as I went forwards. Trust the process. Um, but... Um, I, I've, I have had to trust at a level which is new to me, the process, um, and and I still can't quite believe the process is coming through. The, I started these books with uh, Simon, my uh, my publisher, uh, and we spoke in 2014 when when Hamish Hamilton so beautifully produced How to Be Both, very very fast. And How to Be Both was a really complicated structure of a book. It's got two halves, and one half comes first in some random copies, and the other half comes first in the other. You, you know, it depends which one you randomly pick up. And this was straightforward, but not you know not not not, a, not entirely straightforward. no not entirely straightforward thing to do with a book. And and I handed in the manuscript for it very late, and said I'm sorry <coughs> I'm so late. And they said no, we can still meet our deadline. And they met it within six weeks. Plus, the book is beautiful. And I held the book in my hand and thought, but if you can make a book this beautiful, this complex, so fast, why wouldn't we do this more? <laughs> why would you not? I said to Simon, what about? I've had this idea of these, these seasonal novels for a very long time. Somewhere at the back of my mind, I thought I would always write them when I was old and grey. And certainly I'm going grey writing them. Um, I really am. And that's an interesting experience in itself, just from the fact that books choose us rather than we choose them. But I said to Simon, 2014, can we do this? Is it possible? Can we ask you know, the, the, the team that makes a book to make a book really fast? If I hand it in, we produce it in that six weeks to a month. You know, to, to two months bringing it out and he said I'll ask and everybody came back saying yeah they, they would go with that they would do it and then it was 2016 and then I've told this story before and, and I'll, I'll tell it again very briefly our friend Kaja came around to see me and Sarah my partner and it was New Year we clinked a glass of we said Happy New Year and Kaja said it's supposed to be a referendum this year in Europe and we just laughed we laughed we, we thought that there was no way there could be a referendum how could there be 
when a referendum took so long and needed so much attention because Cash is Scottish and so am I. We knew what a referendum was. We knew the, the analysis it took, the energy it needed, the proper attention that takes years. Uh, and we knew the mess that happens as well with the splits in people's understanding when a referendum, which is a yes-no thing, happens. We're like, it's not going to happen this year. It can't happen this year. Bang. The year in which I'm going to write the novel up to time and the novel's going to meet uh, a deadline which is time zone deadline, it, it's going to feature this. So that's how autumn came about. And winter, uh, also, I mean, <laughs> actually there's a, there's a timetable that, that, that Hamish Hamilton asks me to stick to, which is that the books come out in the season Indeed. that they're called, because then you can put them in the windows of the shop and people will want to buy them for another reason. <laughs> <laughs> as well as just the fact that they're, you know, but because they see a book called Spring in Spring, you might want to buy a book in spring, you know. So, so, and I, I think that follows. I, Something actually, for your aunt who actually, loves gardening kind of thing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it follows, doesn't it? The Simon's at the back. It does, it works. So here we are. But how much did you know about each book? Does, and so now that you've no, done I mean, three, nothing. when you think about summer... yeah. yeah. Oh, summer has already started in my head, and that was, and that happened literally the day I, I gave the manuscript to Simon um, of spring, and came home that night. I went to bed, and summer clicked in that night. The first scene in summer, which is, there, I mean, there'll be something before it, which will be born Dickensian, but the first proper scene of summer kind of declared itself then, and then I knew it was okay. I thought it's it's okay because while writing spring, I had really begun to think is this even a book? What am I doing? How is this going to work? I mean, I was up against it with spring because spring is about hope. And because with autumn, autumn's about, you know, the closing down of things, the shedding of things, the, the, the ripeness, and then the aftermath of the ripeness, which is a kind of, kind of coming apart of things so that winter can happen. And then winter is obviously winter, but spring had to mean something else. And where we were in time and reconciling the very notion of spring to where we were in time was, uh, an interesting experience. Uh, I have to say, it was a it was it was a tough one, but summer is already. So I have to I have to trust time actually, which is what they're about. They're about time. Yes. They're about the fact that time doesn't stop. The fact that time will pass. That these things will pass. Um, Something will happen. And that and that time is cyclic, not just that time is sequential and moves forward, but that actually it's cyclic and it revisits. And the revisiting is something we have to pay attention to, to some extent, when we think about history. Um, but it's also something which allows for things to be dimensional, um, to hold dimension over time, and to, and to come round in their own, what Shakespeare calls the whirligig of time. And, well, I was good for my next question, actually, but I think I would like to hear oh, okay. some of Spring right. now. So let's have, okay, I'll, um, let's have a reading. I'll read, I'll read from the beginning of Spring. I wish I was reading from the beginning of spring. That's a Penelope Fitzgerald novel. I'd much rather be reading that. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone was here, was at Penguin the other day, I'm sorry to read the same piece again, but I'm going to. So There are three voices uh, coming, just so you don't think you've got caught in a nightmare in the first moment. <laughs> now, what we don't want is facts. What we want is bewilderment. 
What we want is repetition. What we want is repetition. What we want is people in power saying the truth is not the truth. What we want is elected members of parliament saying knife getting heated, stuck in our front and twisted. Things like bring your own noose. We want governing members of parliament in the House of Commons shouting kill yourself at opposition members of parliament. We want powerful people saying they want other powerful people chopped up in bags in my freezer. We want Muslim women a joke in a newspaper column. We want the laugh. We want the sound of that laugh behind them everywhere they go. We want the people we call foreign to feel foreign. We need to make it clear that they can can't have rights unless we say so. What we want is outrage, offence, distraction. What we need is to say thinking is elite, knowledge is elite. What we need is people feeling left behind, disenfranchised. What we need is people feeling. What we need is panic. We want subconscious panic. We want conscious panic too. We need emotion. We want righteousness. We want anger. We need all that patriotic stuff. What we want is same old scandal of the alcoholic mother's danger of the daily aspirin, but with more emergency. 999. We need a hashtag line drawn. We want give us what we want or we'll walk. We want fury. We want outrage. We want words at their most emotive. Anti-Semit is good. Nazi is great. Pedo will really do it. Perverted. Foreigner. Illegal. We want gut reaction. We want aged test for child migrants, 98% demand ban new migrants, gunship to stop migrants, how many more can we take, bolt your doors, hide your wives, we want zero tolerance, we need news to be phone size, we need to bypass mainstream media, we need to look past the interviewer, talk straight to camera, we need to send a very clear, strong, unmistakable message. We need newsfeed shock. We need more newsfeed shock. Come on, quick, next newsfeed shock. Pull the finger out. We want torture images. We need to get to them. We need them to think we can get to them. Get the word lynching to anyone not white. We want rape threats, death threats 24-7 to black female members of parliament. No, just women doing anything public. Anyone doing anything public we don't like. We need, how dare she? How dare he? How dare they? We need to suggest the enemy within. We need enemies of the people. We want their judges called enemies of the people. We want their journalists called enemies of the people. We want the people we decide to call enemies of the people called enemies of the people. We want to say loudly over and over again on as many TV and radio shows as possible how they are silencing us. We need to say all the old stuff like it's new. We need news to be what we say it is. We need words to mean what we say they mean. We need to deny what we're saying while we say it. We need it not to matter what words mean. We need a good old slogan. Britain, no, England, America, Italy, France, Germany, Hungary, Poland, Brazil, insert name of country first. We need the dark web, money, algorithms, social media. We need to say we're doing it for freedom of speech. We need bots. We need cliche. We need to offer hope. We need to say it's a new era. The old era is dead. Their time's over. It's our time now. We need to smile a lot while we say it. We need to laugh on camera. Ha, ha, ha. Thump. Man laughing his head off. Hear that factory whistle at the end of the day. That factory's dead. We're the new factory whistle. We're what this country's needed all along. We're what you need. We're what you want. What we want is need. What we need is want. That time again? Is it? Shrugs. None of it touches me. It's nothing but water and dust. You're nothing but bone dust and water. Good. More useful to me in the end. I'm the child who's been buried in leaves. The leaves rot down. Here I am. Or picture a crocus in snow. See the ring of the thaw around the crocus? That's the door open into the earth. I'm the green in the bulb and the moment of split in the seed. The unfurl of the petal, the dabber of ends of the branches of trees with the green as if green is a light. The plants that push up through the junk and the plastic earlier, later, they're coming regardless. The plants shift beneath you regardless. The people in sweatshops, the people out shopping, the people at desks in the light off their screens or scrolling their phones in the surgery waiting rooms, the protesters shouting wherever, whatever the city or country, the light shifts 
The flowers nod next to the corpse heap and next to the places you live and the places you drink yourself stupid or happy or sad and the places you pray to your gods and the big supermarkets, the people on motorways speeding past verges and scrubland like nothing is happening. Everything is. The flower heads open all over the fly tip. The light shifts across your divides, round the people with passports, the people with money, the people with nothing, past sheds and canals and cathedrals, your airports, your graveyards, whatever you bury, whatever you dig up to call it your history or drill down to use up for money, the light shifts regardless. The truth is a kind of regardless. The winters are nothing to me. Do you think I don't know about power? You think I was born green? I was. Mess up my climate, I'll fuck with your lives. Your lives are a nothing to me. I'll yank daffodils out of the ground in December. I'll block up your front door in April with snow and blow down that tree so it cracks your roof open. I'll carpet your house with the river. But I'll be the reason your own sap's reviving. I'll mainline the light to your veins. What's under your road surface now? What's under your house's foundations? What's warping your doors? What's giving your world the fresh colours? What's the key to the song of the bird? What's forming the beak in the egg? What's sending the thinnest of green shoots through that rock so the rock starts to split? It's 11.09 on the Tuesday morning in October 2018 and Richard Leese, the TV and film director, a man most people will best remember for several, well, okay, a couple of critically acclaimed Play for Today productions in the 1970s, but also many other things over the years. I mean, you're bound to have seen something he did if you've lived long enough. He's <laughs> standing on a train platform somewhere in the north of Scotland. Why is he here? Now, that's the wrong kind of question. It implies there's a story. There's no story. He's had it with story. He's removing himself from story, more specifically from story concerning Catherine Mansfield, Rena Maria Rilke, a homeless woman he saw yesterday morning on a pavement outside the British Library, and over and above all of these, the death of his friend. Scrap all that stuff about him being a director you've heard of or not. He's just a man at a station. So far, the station is at a standstill. Delays mean there have been no trains coming in or going out of the station, not for the time he's been standing on its platform, which is sort of like... The station is meeting his needs. There's no one else on the platform. There's no one on the platform opposite. There will be people here somewhere, people who work in the office or look after the place. Surely people are still paid to look after places like this in person. There will be someone watching a screen somewhere, but he's seen no actual people. The only other person he's seen since he left the guest house and walked along the high street is someone moving about in the open hatch of one of those coffee trucks outside the station, one of those Citroen vans, someone serving no one. Not that he's looking for anyone, he isn't, and nobody's looking for him, nobody that matters. Where the fuck is Richard? His mobile is in London in a half-full coffee tumbler with its lid on in a waste bin in a pret-a-manger on the Eastern Road. Eustern Road. Was, he has no idea where it'll be by now, rubbish depot, landfill. Good. Hi Richard, it's me, Martin Terps, do you hear any minute? Can you give me an approximate arrival time for you? Hi, it's me again, Richard. Just to let you know, Martin's just arrived at the office. Any chance you could give me a call and let me know when we can expect you? Richard, it's me. Can you call me? Hi, Richard. Me again. I'm just trying to reschedule this morning's meeting, meeting given that Martin's only in town till tonight. He's not back in London till next week, so give me a call and let me know about this afternoon, will you? Thanks, Richard. I'll appreciate it. Hi, Richard. In your absence, I've rescheduled us for 4pm. Can you confirm when you get this message that you got this message, please? No. He's standing in the wind with his arms folded, holding his jacket against him to stop it flapping, cold, no buttons, 
buttons lost, and looking at the little white flecks in the platform tarmac under his feet. He takes a deep breath. His lungs hurt at the top of his breath. He looks to the mountains at the back of the town. They are really something. They are really bleak and true. They are everything that a mountain can mean. He thinks of his own place in London. Dust particles will be hanging in the sun, coming through the cracks in the blinds if it's sunny in London right now. Look at him, storying his own absence, storying his own dust. Stop it. He's a man leaning on a pillar in a station. That's all. It's a Victorian pillar. The pillar's ironwork is painted white and blue. Then he steps back under the bit of see-through roof over the platform, goes a bit closer to the buildings to get out of the wind. Some of those mountains over there have what looks like rain cloud over their tops, like their tops are veiled. The cloud the other way, direction south, they'd say, looks like a wall, a wall lit from behind. The cloud over the mountains, north, northeast, is mist. It's why he'd got off the train here. The train had pulled towards the station and there'd been something clean about the mountains, clean like swept clean. They'd something about them that accepted the fact of themselves, demanded nothing, they just were. Sentimentalist, self-mythologizer. The automaton voice above his head now apologizes again for the fact that no train is currently arriving at the station or leaving from the station. Almost nothing is happening, give or take the automaton announcements, a few birds crossing the sky, the rustle of the early autumn leaves, the weeds and the grass in the wind. A man standing at a station looks at the mountains all round him in the distance. Today they look like a line drawn freehand by a huge hand then shaded in below. They look like something asleep and waiting. They look like the prehistoric backs of imagined sleeping sea beasts. Story of mountains. Story of myself avoiding stories. Story of myself getting off a fucking train. He shakes his head. He was a man on a platform, a railway platform. There was no story, except there is. There always fucking is. Why was he on a station platform? Was he waiting for a train? No. Was he going somewhere? For what reason? Was he meeting someone off a train? No. Then why was the man on the railway platform at all if it's not about getting or waiting for a train? He just was, okay? Why? And why are you using the past tense about yourself, you loser? <laughs> loser, yeah, that's fair. Something has been lost. Something is. What is? What exactly? Well, I don't know how to describe it. Try. Size. I can't. Try. Come on, you're supposed to be Mr. Drama. What does it look like? Okay, okay, so imagine someone or something, some force or other bearing down on you head first and going through you from head to foot with, uh, with an apple corer so that you're still standing there as if nothing's happened, whereas actually something has. What's happened is you're a hollow man. There's a hole all through you where the core of you once was. Will that do? Self-indulgent dross. Tom and Jerry cartoon self. What, you want sympathy for your own hollowness, your own, what, lost fucking fruitfulness? Look, I'm just trying to put what I'm feeling into words, a feeling that's not easy to describe, into don't story yourself to me, you waste of time in his life when he was able to love, literally be in love with, be at actual soul level, happily infatuated with something like the simplicity of a lemon. Just any lemon in a bowl or on a market stall or in a net with other lemons waiting to be bought at a supermarket. There was a time in his life when such a thing had filled him with joy. But now it was as if such simplicity had, without him even noticing it happening, grown very small and far away and him on the deck of an old ocean liner heading towards rough sea and waving like a madman back at a shore which, like a time when, there'd been a steady kind of joy in something like the simplicity of a lemon, had disappeared, vanished completely, was no longer visible to the eye.
is no longer. Loser. So we have three different voices, as Ali said, at the beginning of this novel. And the final one that we heard is this man we don't know. He's in some kind of self-exile. Mm. And that nice. brings me back to uh, what I hinted I was going to say. And I used in my introduction the word sea change advisedly. Because in all three of these novels, there's been a powerful connection to Shakespeare and particularly to those late comedies. Yeah. The Tempest and then Cymbeline, Winter and now Pericles. Yeah. So maybe talk a, a bit about that okay. connection particularly with, <clears throat> with reference to this novel. Well thank God for Pericles, I tell you, um, because uh, when, I was, when I was writing Autumn and I, and I realised it was being a, a sort of companioned or accompanied by various other texts um, including uh, Ovid and and Huxley and um, Orwell, and Shakespeare, The Tempest was suddenly really walking alongside the novel, and I was I felt like it was actually, it felt as literal as if I was under the armpit of The Tempest. Uh, I mean, and I felt incredible shelter from that, and I thought, gosh, I wonder if these four books will or or would let me sort of shelter under them with with uh, the, the the four last plays the four last great plays the the um, Cymbeline and the Tempest and the Winter's Tale and Pericles except I don't know Pericles I didn't know it at all so great the Tempest was with Autumn and then great obviously um, Cymbeline just made sense with with winter and I knew I had to keep the Winter's Tale for summer because the Winter's Tale is such a summer it's such a summer play it's like you can't believe the winter tale, it cracks open like some kind of amazing egg and out of it comes, you know, the thing that winter denies and there it is all the time at the centre of everything. And um, so I knew summer would be that that one. And also because the end of the winter's tale is the culmination of, of the things which have been happening in all these late plays, really. Pericles. So Pericles was a, a mystery to me. I, I, it's the one I hadn't read. So at the, at the middle of last year, I, I read and read and read Pericles. And Pericles is amazing. It's an amazing play. Uh, first of all, it's about good and bad governance. It's about what goes wrong when you govern badly and how appalling the wrongs are when you govern badly. Funny it, that. Yeah, amazing. And then it's also about what, what <coughs> also goes wrong when you govern well, but because you've governed well, it might be all right. I mean, that, that's the amazing thing about Pericles. There's, there's no... There's no um, it doesn't... It doesn't um, it doesn't make bones about it, you know. This, it, life is a storm, and wh whoever you are, thinking you've got power, you'll be tossed from one end of the sea to the other. And whatever, whoever you marry, they're gonna look. It's gonna look like they're gonna die in childbirth, and you'll have to, you know, sh sh kind of drop them into the sea. And then you'll have a child, but you'll leave the child with some people who are really envious of your child and who will try and murder her. And then your child, who is a child called Marina, child of the king of King Pericles, who's off on the, the stormy seas, good governancing, bad places again, trying to anyway. Marina uh, gets kidnapped by pirates as she's about to be stabbed by some by, by, by the envious people who have set up a, a, an assassin to kill her. The pirates kidnap her and take her off to sea. And then the next scene is these pirates arriving you know, on land going, please take this child away from us. We can't bear her anymore. She's ruining our lives. <laughs> and I kind of imagine that the pirates, when they kidnap uh, Marina, are like really like pirates. They're really rough and they're like... They're I kind of imagine when they've arrived, they're all like their beards are all neat and they've had like their hair cut and they're going, please take her away. We can't bear Because Marina is a force of good and Shakespeare knows she's a force of good that's near farce because she's so good that whatever she comes in contact with just melts into goodness. 
this we know is not possible, or is it? Because Marina gets dropped off in a brothel, and the brothel's really excited by having Marina, because it's like, great, we can really make money out of this girl. She's really beautiful, and she's a virgin. Is she a virgin? They say to the pirates, they're like, yeah, she's really a virgin. You know, because they, they couldn't... They couldn't make her anything other than she is. So there she is in the brothel, and in come people to sleep with people, and Marina converts them all. <laughs> so literally, they, I mean, they come, they come into the room and nobody will sleep with her because they're all, and then there's this tiny scene with these two extras in it who are just in it for this moment of this scene. These two guys standing outside the brothel going, did you ever think to hear prayers in a brothel? <laughs> and you know, one says to them, the other says, yeah, I know, it's really exciting. Let's go to Vespers. And then they... <laughs> you know, and you know at that point that Shakespeare is so taking the piss. And you also know that Shakespeare is saying, you cannot corrupt good. And you won't be able to corrupt good. And it's funny, because it's laughable, because we're all human. And there's Marina, and in comes this man who's the senator, and he's like, ha, ha, I'm going to have sex with you. And she's like, you're a senator, you're supposed to be honourable. What are you doing? And he says, well, you're quite right, I'm supposed to be honourable. I'm really sorry. I'll tell you what, I'm really, really, really sorry, and, and later we'll... You know, I'll ask you to marry me. You know, and he does, and she does. You know, so that's the force of Pericles: miraculous, farcical, untouchable, good. Good. Yeah. And so, a gift for this book, which asked for hope in the most hopeless time. And I would say one of the things that's extraordinary about this book is it does have this extraordinary sense of hopefulness, and yet, of the three books. I think it works with the darkest and most difficult yeah. material. Yeah, I think so too. That appears in any of them. And I'd like to ask you about the work because um, uh, refugees play a very yeah. important role in this book. Tell us a bit about that and the research that you I will. did. Um, after Richard's first section, as it were, we, we kind of hit into a whole other story, which may or may not feel like a whole other book because... An awful lot of, I think, what spring is about is about the fact that everything is connected, whether we think it is or isn't, or whether we decide it isn't. You know, it is, just everything is connected, and these two stories sit beside each other and become connected by dint of existing at the same time. And what exists at the same time is Richard's melancholy thoughtfulness about the lost ways in which stories have been able to be told up to now, and the loss of his scriptwriter friend who's dear to his heart. What happens in the next section is uh, a set in a, an immigration removal centre, very like the ones which people are in right now, based on one of the ones in which people are in right now. Um, and it's uh, about the, the work that people are doing in these centres, the ways in which people are reduced in these centres, the ways in which the people who are kept in the centres are reduced and the people who are working in them are reduced. And what happens if you... Imagine that those doors, which are so closed in these places, I mean, these places are high-tech prisons, really, and they are full of people who are not criminals. They are full of people who have nowhere else to go and nobody will let them stay. So they dump the people in there and a business runs because you can keep a lot of salaries paid if you're running these centres and running a business where roughly 30,000 people can be detained per year, and some of you can drop them, some of them back into the community and then pick them up again when you feel like it or when your numbers are down. It's about the, the, the industry, as it were, of deciding who belongs where and thinking that you can. So into that uh, story, you drop Pericles and the, the notion that doors will open for goodness and then you see whether or not that will work or not or happen or not and it comes from and it comes from something which which is like which was a life-changing experience for me and this is a this is me saying it and i'm at this level of importance in this because actually what i saw was 
when I started working with the people who uh, call themselves refugee tales, and they write to writers and they say, will you meet a detainee and write that person's story? Because detainees are the most invisible people in this country right now, and their voices are never heard. And they can't hope to be heard, but they might hope to be heard if someone else voices it. So you could ask, act as a mask for or a presenter of a, a voice story, a voiced story which someone else will tell you. And I did. I met a man who'd been trafficked since the age of four and then ended up coming here and was trafficked as a young adult. Didn't even know he was in the UK. He was flown into a country and ended up moving white goods from you know, a warehouse into another bit of the warehouse and polishing them. And I've seen, I've I told his story, and I, I've known him now, and I've seen him be you know, kind of, kind of refused appeal after appeal, because even though he's helped the police about the traffickers, then that stuff doesn't count anymore because that was before that appeal doesn't count for this. So on. I've watched the the system deal with this man monstrously, but one of the things I got to do was go and visit Brook House. Uh, outside Gatwick, right next to Gatwick, in come the planes all the time, vroom, 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 above this building which took me through, I don't know, seven security gates to get in. Wow. And at one of the security gates, a woman <coughs> went through my coat. And you know those little buttons that come in an envelope, but you get put in your coat pocket, right? Okay. And spare I, buttons. Spare button in an envelope, a little envelope. And the woman uh, patted my coat and she found a pencil sharpener which I didn't know was in my pocket, a, a ball of fluff and one of these little envelopes. And she said to me, were you going to use this pencil sharpener to sharpen a pencil and write a message on this envelope? And I was like, I didn't even know it was in there. I didn't know there was an envelope or a piece of paper in there. No, you know. And then I thought, this woman was younger than me. And I thought, what is your life like? Never mind what, you know, what I'm about to see in this foul place where I saw a Vietnamese man who had taught himself English from a, a dictionary this size is what I saw in the room that I visited. And I was, we were made to sit on seats that were screwed to the floor and not to touch. And I watched the person who came with me and took me into that place, talking of whether you could write something in an envelope or not. She brought him a notebook to give this man, this Vietnamese man. The notebook was taken away. He would not see it for maybe a month because it has to go through a special security service. Plus it has to be weighed and it has to be charted and they have to count the pages. And then eventually you might get a notebook, but then you're not supposed to be allowed to write in these places anyway, because writing is against their rules. So that's what I saw in one afternoon, right? And one morning I met a man who told me the story, and one afternoon I went to this place. And I am not going to forget it, and I know it's at the centre of what this country now means to me, in a way that I couldn't not talk about at a point when Brexit means that all immigrants <laughs> are questionable, never mind the ones... Legal immigrants are questionable, never mind the ones who are illegal immigrants. Whatever the notion of legal and illegal means in citizenry in this country today. Extraordinary, really um, extraordinary. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Another theme of this novel, going back to Richard <laughs> on that train station, I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that uh, he has lost someone. He's, yeah, he lost he's, his friend. He's lost yeah. his friend. Yeah. And you have always written wonderfully about friendship. It seems particularly strong in this book. And I have long thought that friendship as an encounter, as an emotion, is often overlooked in favor of romantic love, which is a, a bigger idea and seemingly more dramatic. Mm. And 
I'm curious about your focus on its importance because you stress these two, their, their real relationship yeah. was never as lovers but as friends. Why is that significant in this book? Um, again, I think this is a book about the, about the importance of, of, of proper connection and of the ways in which we understand the stories we are living by communality and by an agreed communality, which means discussion and argument as well as friendship and, and agreement. And so Paddy, who is the, the woman, is, who is this man's scriptwriter, who has died and he's sort of left on the edge of mourning her. He's kind of on the outskirts of being able to mourn her because he's not family. And yet, you know, they were briefly lovers. It doesn't really count because something else was happening, which was that Paddy really knew how to tell a story. She was really good. And Richard, as a very young man, understands how good she is at seeing what the real, the true, the helpful, the, the connecting narrative might be. So Richard has not only lost his friend, he's left on, on the outside of, of also of a, a, a project which he's been left with, which Paddy was helping him with, which is which is something that I always thought this novel might be about and then has turned out to be very on the side, which is that Catherine Mansfield and Rainer Maria Rilke in 1922 both lived about two miles from each other. I mean, Rilke lived in his tower up the road, the, castle, the Chateau Musot, just up the road from a hotel where Mansfield, when she'd had a fight with Middleton Murray, was living. She came down and lived in this hotel where Rilke would come and have his supper. The very notion that Rilke and Mansfield are in the same room and don't know each other, you know, I mean, oh my God, what on earth would that have been like? Because for Mansfield and Rilke eating off the same, whatever the same platter was that the hotel was serving that night. The missed connections, the, the lost possibilities. Did they speak to each other? They must have said hello to each other. They must have seen each other. Anyway, Richard is left with the, the great, terrible knowledge that his friend would have known exactly what to do with this story and he is now left making a story about these two people meeting, kind of uh, making it into a, a film, someone's version of the novel of them meeting or not meeting, and the forced connection that some narratives ask of us, dominant narratives ask of us. When and he's being pushed yeah, towards that yeah. dominant yeah. narrative. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for you to ask your questions, so why don't we open up now. I think uh, there is this <coughs> famous microphone, it is at the back. I wanted to ask about Florence Smith and I wanted to ask about the fact that she shares your name and being a Smith, that's not really a question, but yeah. I just wanted to ask if you could talk about that a bit. Well, Florence Smith is, a, is the character in this book who's been stolen from uh, Shakespeare's Pericles as, form, as a form of Marina. This child, who's 12 years old, um, is the person who can simply open shut doors, or can she? And that's the question that this book asks. What, does, what, what would it mean? What does it mean to open a door? And what does it mean for a door not to open? Is, I think is the question of whether there is hope or not. Um, Florence is, uh, she's called Smith. You want to know about Smith. She's called Smith partly because that name is the, one of the empire's biggest names. You know, so many people who were owned as slaves will have been called Smith. Number one, so many people across what was the empire, it's the, it's the most popular name in the empire. Plus, uh, having it myself, I know what this name means. It means a person who can melt metal and bend it like nobody else can by force of forge. They can forge things into different shapes. Plus, it, it, 
the person who could do that was always relegated to the edge of the village because everybody was scared of that power. So it's about the outsider, the power of the outsider, the power of the outlier. And also, there's a, I mean, because this book heads off into the highlands, um, there's a legend in the place where these people all come together and meet about a man called William the Smith, who was a poet and a philosopher and a poacher. And it's about all those things together, whether you can have the stealing, that poaching, or the, the charm stealing, as it were, where you can, you know, you can charm a, a creature, a, a, a guddle a trout or guddle a salmon into your hands and then pick it up. You know, the, the, the tickling charm that's also part of philosophy and also part of uh, poetry. So all those things are held in that name for that girl. And also, I feel like, I, I don't know, I want her to be my family. I want that girl as my family. Um, so I couldn't help it. This is the first person who's been called Smith in any of my books. And, uh, and I, you know, I hope she is my family. Yeah. Yeah. And she's one too, I would say, of, but there, there, there are these young people in your books who see what others don't see, who uh, have hope where others don't have yeah. hope. And, that, you know, talking about the wider kind of political question, you know, one of the things that's so striking about where we are now, it seems to me that what young people have wanted by and large has been ignored. Oh my God. What young people want right now is for us to pay bloody better attention to what is happening in the environment. If you don't, if everybody in this room knows that that is what the hope is right now, the hope is that young people are going, I'm not going to school because what's the point of an, an education when an education is going to mean nothing when the world is in fire, when the world is flooded? What is the point? What, what do you call an education? Those people, they are changing this in a way that nothing else can change it. And that pure impetus that comes through those kids but it's amazing what resistance there with is. With pieces of cardboard, right? And that, I think, uh, what Greta Thunberg has done and what those kids all across this country who have been setting up <laughs> strikes, school strikes and school meetings are doing, actually things can change, is what I think. When, when we're looking at things that seem to be changing all day on the Guardian <laughs> you know, website, going, it seems to be changing, but nothing's changing. We've all asked for change, but it's not going to change. We've just been told it's not going to change. So it doesn't matter what we say, it's not going to change. Those kids are going to, they're going to change it. Who else? I think that's definitely they're going to change it. You've kind of already asked, answered my question. I was going to ask about like, how you keep coming back to children okay. and how children um, are in so many of your, of your books. Hmm. And Is that unusual? Are there no children in any other books? Um. <laughs> I mean, I'm just always amazed when, when people think that the children are, like, unusual because it's, they're kind of, you know, do I, you think know I, mean? as, I think as significant actors. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than and, as and, set dressing or... And, and not in terms of um, their relation to adults. Yes. You know, okay. I, I, I'm interested in... Yeah, that's not really a question. <laughs> no, it's a good question then. Um, uh, I don't know uh, why. I suppose it's because preconception is at its least and most strong uh, when we're little, because the world is presented to us, but at the same time, the eyes of the child are wide open. Um, there was no getting away from the child in a book called Spring. There just wasn't. There was no ignoring the force, which is the young force of the year, which just blasts everything into colour and green and everything new for the first time, anciently, right? 
So that figure. In these books in particular, I've got at the back of my head a photograph uh, on a postcard that Edouard Bouba took in 1946. It's a photograph of a small child standing in the Tuileries in Paris. And the child you're seeing from the back, probably a girl, but you can't tell. And the child is wearing a lot of dead leaves as like a, gar a garment, a long garment. And the ch this child looks like a, a Holocaust survivor with rags all over her. I'm going to say her, I think it's her. Or it looks like a game, or it looks like a ragged child who's been through history and been cut up by the angel of history's you know, wings, you know, the, 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 the scissor wings. The child is, that child is at the back of this book, and it's the child of 1946, right? The child who survived that cataclysm and the future that comes forward from that image of the child looking to a, a wooded area as if, and dressed in ancient, ruined, old, dead things, is, is what I think, when I, when I think about the, the importance of the child, at least in these, in these books, I think that must be, must be right, must be true for mm. me. There's a scene that really sticks with me from Autumn, which is when um, uh, Elizabeth and Daniel are walking by the lake, oh, by the river, and yeah. he, he's explaining a Pauline Boaty painting to her. Um, and he, it's every picture tells a story and every story tells a picture. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it's not really a question, but it's just like the relationship of pictures in your work. Yeah. Um, if you could maybe talk about that. Okay. I will. Um, and in this book, it's Tastadine. Yeah, the artist in this book is Tastadine. Um, I, I didn't know who, the, who, who they are, because each of these books, along with being lucky to be under the armpits of Shakespeare, um, they have had as their spine, each of them, uh, an, a visual artist um, who has happened to be a woman. Good. Um, and um, and uh, with this one, I didn't know. I couldn't tell. I knew it was going to be a filmmaker because of the shift of the... I don't know, something about the shift of the century, but I didn't know until I went to see Tastadine's exhibition at the Royal Academy with that massive mountain scape and the clouds around it. And then I just knew that of all the artists working right at the moment, Dean is talking about the inexorable and she's talking about the ways in which what we just look at as landscape is not just landscape. She's talking about what a cloud can mean. She's talking about all the things that a, a changing structure can mean in the sky. All the things that our imagination going to this thing which morphs as we watch it, that doesn't stay the same, that is about the imagination and about nature. All those things which are in a way being ignored by the structures which are dictating to us across the world at the moment and about and, and are, doing, are dictating to nature equally. Um, the ways in which myth is common currency every day among us all is the other thing that, that Tastadine is really interested in. So that Antigone is happening. I mean, it's happening. I mean, in a way, there's, a, there's an Antigone strand as well in the notion of the powerless child who's the only person who can stand up to power and say, this is wrong, because nothing to lose, no power at all. Why would... Why nothing would, at stake. Nothing, nothing except at stake. Except everything. Nothing at stake except the whole of the life and the world. Yeah. So... Um, the, the, the visual artists, are, I'm, I'm, I'm thanking them for the spirit of whatever it is that, that they pass on to the thing. And Tastadine, and this is an interesting thing, Pauline Boaty lost to us. Barbara Hepworth, you'd think everybody would know who Barbara Hepworth was, but the man who discovered the portrait of Barbara Hepworth that Ethel Walker, the lost artist, as it were, of winter, did, had no idea. He's a man in America. He portrait of Miss Hepworth, who's that? 
Has it anything to do with the Hepworth Museum? I wonder if she's the family <laughs> who gave the money for the museum. You had no idea who Barbara Hepworth was, that man. Barbara Hepworth lost. How is that possible? Tassida Dean. Whole city filled with her exhibitions. 100 years' time, people will remember, I hope, Tassida Dean. But we don't know because the history has a way of women falling off the back of it, you know. Um, uh, the, the canonical doesn't hold on to women in the same way as it holds on to the, uh, the artists who happen not to be uh, women. Um, <laughs> and plus, something fruitful, something properly fertile happens in our coming to and our being in the presence of visual art, music, choreography, pieces, sculpture, anything that's aesthetic around us renews us, gives us back where we are, what we're doing, our imaginations, how we connect, all ourselves. So, uh, you know, here's to them. You know. I just wanted to ask if you could tell us some more about your writing process because it's so incredibly current and I know it's a very fast turnaround as you were explaining earlier, but yep. do you wait for ideas to come to you or do you just start writing? Um, I had you don't you don't you don't know how it's going to go. I had thought that this would be a book about something other than this, and I thought it would be a lot more about Mansfield and Rilke, who ended up being very sort of a, a kind of. Uh, it's at the edge. Yeah, it's at the edge. They're 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 there at the edge of the of the story, but the story dictates itself as you write it, and you have to go with it. Um, and of course, the difficulty with spring, with this and with this time and with this book is that. The story refused to dictate itself. It said there is no such thing as story when you're bereaved or when you're in stasis where there's no you know, political hope or when uh, people say things are disconnected. Story stops working when disconnect happens. It stops, it stops working. It becomes something else. It becomes propaganda. Plus, do you know what? There's no story if you're a refugee because if you arrive in this country, you're supposed to fill in a page which is like 300 words and that's it, that's all the story you're going to be allowed. And if you get that story wrong, when people ask you it again, when someone's written down, you they know, think you're the A4, you're lying and you're never going to get anywhere because now you've lied. So the very notion that you've got to hitch yourself to a story is obscene. So all the questions of obscenity and story were also at the back of this story. So I was sat down in October going, well, I don't know what the fuck is going to happen. Because all of those things were at play in the very notion of story. It, the story denied itself as it wrote itself. Um, so um, I got to the end of the book and, and gave it to Sarah, my, my partner, to read and said, is it even a, I don't even know if this is a book. Because it asks other questions of what story generally does. And it has to, because we have to start thinking about the ways in which stories are used against as well as stories you know simply exist in the world we have to start thinking about the ways in which stories reduce rather than open things out so that so it was this one was a tough one the process was tough do you find it harder or easier to hope as you age especially as you see more awful things and especially as you choose to engage with awful things do I find it harder or easier to hope as I get older? Something happens which frees you from the personal. I think that's true, and I think it's an interesting thing. 
you get you get freed from you get to be less subjective, which doesn't mean you're objective, but it means that you're more free floating. So um, something happens, which is a longer picture. And there's a friend of mine um, who's a novel, novelist, Kate Atkinson, who said to me as she hit sixty, "I'm entering my wisdom," and it means that you know I get to leave myself behind, and that's right. Something happens. We get we 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 you know you, you inhabit we inhabit. A, a larger scale, yeah, um, landscape, kind of, kind of, kind of vision, and that has to be hopeful. And also, um, God, this has been the roughest, toughest time of our lives in this country, and we haven't seen anything yet. Hmm. And we have to be ready. And I'm listening to Merkel say that thing that she said the other day, which is, "Hope dies last." Merkel said, "Merkel, with all the knowledge, of what it means." For history to strip itself of hope for millions, and so in that knowledge, in the knowledge of the march I went on the other day, which was massive, massive, in the knowledge of the kids who are coming up, going, "It's my world, actually. This is my world, and and you can't cheat me of it." In the knowledge of the fact that spring comes round, even when Theresa May says it isn't going to, right? <laughs> Or the DUP say it isn't going to whoever's in charge, whoever thinks they're in charge of whatever it is, <laughs> beyond. And this, I'm going to uh, uh, tell a, a story. I, I might have said when I was talking about winter again, and so it might turn up on, an, on another podcast. But it's the one that makes me always think, think beyond the self, think bigger than the self. Um, about Hendrik Vergelund, the Norwegian poet in the 18th, in the 19th century, who said, as he was dying young, having written the most Bristlingly brilliant poems about cross-cultural understanding in a country which was refusing to have cross-cultural understanding. He's dying, and he says, "Please kiss next year's roses for me." Yes, because there will be, and that's my hope. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.